Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Senator Ron Wyden discusses GPS location tracking by the government. Peya Emelson discusses school choice in Sweden. Professor Nelson Lund talks about the Second Amendment. And author David Mayer talks about liberty of contract. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. It was 50 years ago this year that President Dwight David Eisenhower, on his way out of office, warned us of the military-industrial complex. And I'm here talking now with Benjamin Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute, and Christopher Preble, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and author of The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. We're talking sort of about military spending in the modern age, 50 years since uh, President Eisenhower identified a serious problem. Now, Eisenhower was commander-in-chief of the armed forces in the United States. So what, leading up to this speech that he gave, Chris Preble, what was he seeing? Eisenhower was you know, a unique figure in American history for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the leading general in World War II, at least to the European theater, and then came into office, was elected as president, among other things, for promising to get the United States out of the Korean War, which he did, except for the fact that we still have troops in Korea, but ended the war. By the time he left office in 1961, he was really despairing of the fact that he had failed to bring down military spending. He pointed in his speech to there being peace, uh, relatively speaking, but had witnessed the growth of military spending and and kind of presided over it and ultimately was repudiated at the polls indirectly. Of course, he was prevented from running for a third term, but his vice president, Richard Nixon, ran against John Kennedy in 1960. And Eisenhower interpreted Kennedy's victory as a repudiation of his economic philosophy and his philosophy of military strategy. And so the speech was kind of trying to alert people to the fact that they had had adopted a permanent armaments industry, which the country had never really had. And he anticipated that it was creating a set of interests that would make it very, very hard in reality to bring military spending down, even if the threats did recede. Now, 50 years later, who are these interests that we're talking about? Well, 50 years later, the interests are the military contractors, the uniform military personnel, many of whom, especially senior officers, retire from service and then take jobs in the military industry. You have communities that have become dependent upon military spending, you know, from the building of ships and planes to, you know, all the other things that we think of in terms of supplying the military down to, you know, small items like clothing and, and food. And, you know, it's one of the few areas in the federal budget where a member of Congress can point to a particular line item in the budget and say, I brought this home for you. You know, we think of post offices and things like that, but those are really very small. And sometimes a defense contract can be quite large. Benjamin Friedman. I would just add to the list of entities that are in the military industrial complex a lot of public intellectuals and the think tanks and universities that employ them, which take Pentagon money and therefore have to answer questions that have been prescribed to them in large parts by their sponsors and the government, which isn't to say that they give phony or necessarily bad answers, but that they're limited in what they can say. And then also people in those same entities and think tanks who aspire to working at the top levels of the government 
in the Pentagon who are intellectually limited by that ambition in what they say. So I think the interests have a pervasive effect on what we learn about defense because these public intellectuals have an outsized influence on what we hear about defense. Right. And it's about how we interpret threats, too. These academic institutions talk about threat and you could argue hype the threat. I think we focus perhaps too narrowly on the role that military industry and military contractors play. But Ben's absolutely right. Again, this is an aspect of Eisenhower's speech that I think is too little noticed. He talked about the academy and the universities growing increasingly dependent upon the federal government, not just on the Defense Department, and to the point where he was very worried about intellectual integrity and rigor. Ben Friedman, how has this concern about intellectual integrity altered the debate about military spending today? Well, I just think in the United States in the course of the Cold War then after in large parts because we have such a big military establishment that we've gotten used to believing and hearing a lot of these arguments. So uh, the idea that we, the United States, have to sort of run the world to be safe would have uh, prior to the Cold War been considered a sort of crazy idea by most people, certainly most people on the right. That's not a very conservative idea. But in the course of the Cold War with the sort of continuing assault of these arguments on people hearing over and over again that our safety depends on this or that corner of the world. I think a lot of people came to believe it. And I think a lot of those people are now uh, running the government or would run it in a Republican administration. So I think the interests produce ideas that are pervasive and hard to get rid of. One phrase that is called to my mind that came out of the Bush administration is just the very idea of ridding the world of evildoers. And um, help us understand how far that is from what you see as the appropriate use of our military might. Right. I mean, it's an incredibly ambitious, almost ridiculously ambitious set of goals and almost by its definition can never be achieved and therefore no amount of money can ever be enough to rid the world of evildoers. I mean, the thing about Eisenhower and to bring it to the present day is that he didn't doubt that the contest with the Soviet Union was an important one and he didn't have any regrets in that respect. But I think it would truly shock him. 20 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States spends more in real dollars, actually twice as much in real dollars than when Eisenhower was president. I think in one respect it would horrify him, but it would really confirm his warning that these interests had defined for us threats that in times past would just look absurd to us. Recently, Cato Institute had a forum featuring Susan Eisenhower, granddaughter of Dwight Eisenhower, but also a scholar herself. And when I spoke with her, we talked a little bit about President Obama in his early months in office, revealed later by Bob Woodward about his struggle to draw down in Afghanistan, at least internally, and having these arguments with the Pentagon and within his own administration. And she seemed, you know, obviously very troubled by the fact that he had very difficult time as the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces to get the Pentagon to essentially go along with his plan. And ultimately, he doubled down there. I question how committed Barack Obama was to drawing down in the first place. But it also seems quite clear that had he been committed to that, he would not have, you know, received a very a very warm reception from the Pentagon. I mean, my argument is he's the commander-in-chief. So if he can't find a general or an admiral that agrees with him, uh, he can find one. There are lots of them. And ultimately, that's his job. So I think it can be something of a cop-out. But I also think that having invested so much 
the military wants very much to come out of Afghanistan with something that can be portrayed as a victory and therefore was pushing very hard against a drawdown short of victory. Ben Friedman, you've written about how rhetoric sometimes gets the best of uh, our sense of reason when it comes to military spending. One thing that most people might be surprised to actually hear is that how that money gets divvied up, the money that gets to the Pentagon, how it gets divvied up among the various branches. How does that function? It gets divvied up without a great deal of thought because the amount of money that goes to each military service has been steady, that is, as a share of the total budget since the end of the Eisenhower administration. Since the Kennedy administration, we've had equal service shares. And you would think that if we were fighting two wars that primarily are fought by ground forces, the Army and the Marines, that we would give more of the defense budget to those services and less to the Army and Air Force. And neither of the two administrations that have prosecuted these wars have made that sort of shift. And they ought to. They ought to uh, manage the Pentagon a little more aggressively. And Eisenhower, in large parts because he was a general, because he had that experience, did that. He thought that uh, in the 1950s, our defense strategy should involve nuking the Soviets should they come across the line in Europe. And that was something that the Air Force did with bombers back then. So he gave 50% of the budget to the Air Force and the Navy and the Army had to fight over the rest. And they were very unhappy about that. But uh, they dealt with it. And I would argue it had actually some beneficial effects on their behavior in terms of their willingness to innovate. So in some sense, we've had a gentleman's agreement among the branches of the armed forces since Eisenhower was in office? Yeah, they sort of hold hands uh, in order to avoid civilians causing fights among them. They collude, you might say, against uh, the interferences of, of civilians. My argument is that if you picked a winner among the services, if you said, look, I'm, my strategy is to uh, not occupy countries but come from the sea and attack them when necessary, well, that's a Navy first strategy. And if you gave more of the budget, relatively speaking, to the Navy, they might be your ally in public and in the message they give uh, when they testify on the Hill and things like that. That. It's obscured a little bit in the current budget because of the use of supplemental, what they call overseas contingency operations. So clearly, the, uh, more of this goes to the Army and Marine Corps. And the Army and Marine Corps have grown in terms of numbers of personnel since Iraq, whereas the Navy and the Air Force have actually come down slightly in terms of number of people in uniform. But of course, the argument is that because of the use of technology and you know the buzzword is the force multiplier, you're able to bring more force to bear with lesser numbers of people people and lesser, you know, fewer platforms and things like that. Ben's absolutely right. If you see the way that Secretary Gates and Admiral Mullen, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, rolled out actually a little bit ahead of time, they rolled out the plan for the budget for 2012. And it was very clear that it was not a strategic shift. It was not an attempt to argue for one service over the other. It was each service kind of offering up a little thing that was kind of, you know, well, this is painful, but we're sharing the pain. It's a haircut and, and just an, a fundamental refusal on the part of Gates and others in the Pentagon to consider a strategic change. A whole lot of people were swept into office by the Tea Party movement in November 2010. One of the darlings of the Tea Party, newly minted Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, in his first speech on the Senate floor said, I'm willing to compromise or we should be willing to compromise on where we cut. And the first thing he offered was cuts in military spending. Historically, military spending is something that can be cut in some circumstances. The Obama budget, as we were talking before we started recording here, you say the big news about the Obama budget with the military is that there's no big news with regard to spending. That's right. The news that 
Secretary Gates wants people to, to think is that he's made some very difficult choices, and the number you'll hear is $78 billion over five years. First of all, a lot of that money is offset by increases or shifting of funds to the wars, but more importantly, $78 billion, even just against the base budget, amounts to about 2.2 or 2.3 percent of total spending. It is a very, very small amount. Ben Friedman? The willingness in either party right now to cut defense spending is just not there. We're hearing a lot more noise about it than we have. We had the president's deficit commission suggest substantial cuts to defense spending, even cuts against actual spending as opposed to projected spending. But neither party right now is stepping up to the plate. The Republicans in the House have plans uh, which they've enacted in the continuing resolution that they're offering to cut discretionary spending, but they're not including defense spending in the cut. They're keeping that growing, albeit growing slightly. I think the White House, which maybe wants to cut defense spending more, I'm not entirely sure, is scared off by the behavior of Republicans and worried about getting attacked from the right. So I think we're sort of waiting uh, to see if there's some sort of budget deal between the two parties where you could get a compromise that includes defense spending cuts. There are two reasons why Rand Paul's proposal is interesting. First of all, Fort Campbell, Kentucky is a major military installation. So he has military interests in his own state and yet is seeming to take seriously the national security implications of a massive debt. And the fact that the military is certainly one of the contributing factors, not the only one and not even the most important one, but is a contributing factor. And I think recognizing how much the military budget has grown, he at least seems to be taking this seriously. There are a few others. I think Tom Coburn, who was one of the three Republicans on the Deficit Reduction Commission who voted in favor of cuts, including cuts to defense. He's been interesting and outspoken. But so far, they're among the minority for sure among the Republican caucus. The thing that Rand Paul does that I applaud is that when he says we ought to cut defense spending, he says we ought to cut defense commitments. And that's a point that Chris and I have made continually. If you tell the military, you're going to do everything you've been doing with 20% or 10% less money, they're going to rightfully complain that you're overburdening them. And we say, no, you're going to do less. You're going to do substantially less. We're going to have less commitments to defend rich allies and fight never-ending counterinsurgency campaigns. And then we're going to have cuts. And I think that's the way you ought to do it. And in fact, if you say it that way, you can get a fair amount of support from within the military services in people in uniform. The argument that people make whenever military spending is on the table is this issue supporting the troops. But if, like you say, you're rethinking what the military is being used for, you are, in fact, supporting the troops. So rhetorically, with maybe some new members of Congress, severe budgetary constraints coming due largely to entitlements. Chris Preble, you've said many times we have to rethink what we use that military for. Absolutely. And I think we don't, I mean, we start with the presumption that the United States has certain core fundamental responsibilities the government does to our security here in the United States. But other countries have the same responsibility first for their own defense and secondarily for the defense and security challenges in their respective regions. The United States is not and should not be the world's policeman. We've behaved as such. If we were to scale that back, scale back that, those commitments, we could achieve substantial savings, you know, far even more than what the Deficit Reduction Commission, for example, put on the table. A lot of people on the right who are skeptical about foreign aid, we argue, ought to be skeptical about our military budget because a lot of it is really disguised foreign aid. We could spend a lot less money if we weren't 
agreeing to defend Europe from a threat that's basically disappeared, agreeing to defend South Korea from North Korea, and, and South Korea is 40 or 30 times the GDP of North Korea, and thereby sort of subsidizing the budgets of those countries and even their social welfare programs, which they can spend more on because they spend less on defense because we've got that covered. So I think that's an argument that you ought to hear more of, hopefully, from people in the Tea Party movement, including Rand Paul. What should our military budget look like? The proposal that Ben and I put forward last year, the budgetary savings from military restraint, proposes $1.2 trillion in cuts over 10 years, which we calculated comes out to about, it's like 18 18%, something like that, against what was projected. But we also say that that's just a first offer. That's not the final you know, result. If we were to make the arguably major strategic changes that we think are warranted, I think a military budget ultimately would come down around 25% below where it is today and where it's projected to be. And those, you know, those sound quite substantial. But as a matter of fact, defending the United States from the you know, legitimate threats to its security could be accomplished with a far smaller military than one we have today. We're talking about effective deterrence from a nuclear strike and also the ability to go somewhere else in addition to defending our own borders. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just hard to justify the force structure we have right now based on our enemies. So we have 11 carrier battle groups. The Chinese, who are the big justification for the size of our Navy, have zero. They're working on a carrier. They've been working on it for a while. So it's hard to say how big a lead do you need on the rest of the world, even the rest of the world combined. We're so far ahead that we just say, look, we can make very substantial cuts in the amount of uh, air wings we have, the amount of uh, carrier battle groups, and uh, most importantly, in my opinion, on the size of the ground forces because we want to be out of the business of occupying states perpetually in the name of counterterrorism. And I think so do most Americans right now. So we don't need an army and a Marine Corps that we've built up for that purpose over the last five years. We can reduce the size of uh, those forces in particular, I think. We've talked about the military spending that the United States engages in that is wasteful. What about the military spending that we engage in that is actively damaging, that is imposes risks upon us that you've written about extensively? Right. I mean, Ben just alluded to this, is that stationing troops in you know foreign lands is always a risky proposition. It always risks engendering resentment and hostility, particularly so in countries that are you know, particularly resentful or even xenophobic, like a country like Afghanistan, which has proven time and time again how much it hates having foreign troops on its soil. We're told that the Afghans like us. I'm convinced that it's the Afghans that we ask that will tell us that, but the Afghans that we don't talk to feel the way that Afghans have felt for hundreds of years, which is they'd really rather not have foreigners mucking around in their country. You know, I think that is an argument that we've made for a long time here at Cato. A number of other scholars have made it. The other issue is just the likelihood of us being drawn into conflicts that are not a primary concern for the United States. And and the best encapsulation of this is, is uh, one of Ben's professors, Barry Posen at MIT, who, who talks about 
free riding by allies, cheap riding by allies, and reckless driving by allies, which is to say the moral hazard of our allies behaving in ways that are harmful to their own security, but ultimately harmful to ours because it increases the likelihood that we'll be drawn into conflicts that are best avoided entirely. All right, gentlemen, we will leave it there. Benjamin Friedman, Research Fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute, and Christopher Preble, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, author of The Power Problem, how American military dominance makes us less safe, less prosperous, and less free. And uh, both of these gentlemen have written Budgetary Savings Through Military Restraint, report available at our website, cato.org. The progressive era marked a decline in many aspects of Americans' liberties. The liberty of contract is no exception. Constitutional scholar David Mayer discussed the second-class status of liberty of contract at the Cato Institute in January. For a 40-year period between 1897 and 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court protected as a fundamental right something that it called liberty of contract, the freedom of individuals to enter into contracts, to bargain over the terms, and to set the terms of their own contracts. That freedom was part of the general right to liberty that was protected by the Constitution, by the due process clauses of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. Fifth Amendment against the national government, the Fourteenth Amendment against the state governments. Laws that deprive persons of that liberty were declared unconstitutional and struck down by the Supreme Court. These included such things as maximum hour laws, minimum wage laws, housing segregation laws, and by that I mean laws mandating racial segregation in housing, licensing laws and other laws limiting entry into certain markets, laws banning insurance contracts with out-of-state firms, an interesting category of law considering the debate today over, over government regulation of health care and health insurance. And finally, laws interfering with freedom of parents to determine what kind of schooling their children receive. My book is the first comprehensive treatment of this 40-year period when the court protected liberty of contract as a fundamental right. It's also known as the Lochner era because of the most famous, or as Roger suggested, infamous decision of the Supreme Court, Lochner versus New York in 1905, which is viewed by many as sort of the epitome of the liberty of contract cases. But this period is also the most misunderstood period in U.S. constitutional history, hence the need to rediscover the court's protection of liberty of contract. Why is it so misunderstood? Well, it's because there is a traditional or orthodox view of the so-called Lochner era that has dominated for several generations now. It's the view that has been taught to several generations of law students in their constitutional law classes. It's the view uncritically accepted by most legal scholars, by justices of the Supreme Court, by journalists, political commentators, and so on. On both sides of the political spectrum, both left and right, both liberal and conservative. Now, this traditional or orthodox view is based on several myths. They're very important myths because they're the myths, they're among the key myths 
myths about history, about economics, about the law, that help to support, to prop up the 20th century regulatory state, the modern welfare state. Now, chief among these myths is the one that I call the myth of laissez-faire constitutionalism. That's what some scholars also refer to the Lochner period as, a period of so-called laissez-faire constitutionalism. It's, in my view, the constitutional law equivalent of a modern urban legend. The legend began with Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., in his dissent in the Lochner case, where he accused the majority of the justices erroneously as deciding the case based upon an economic theory, ideology, laissez-faire ideology. He mentioned the best-known English classical liberal philosopher of the late 19th century, Herbert Spencer, and his most famous work, Social Statics. And in a famous passage that is often quoted from Justice Holmes' dissent, he said, the Constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, therefore accusing the majority of reading this laissez-faire ideology into the Constitution. Now, this caricature by Holmes of what the majority of the court did in the Lochner case was reinforced by the interpretation of scholars and jurists during the so-called progressive era. I always refer to the early 20th century progressive era, capital P progressive era, as so-called progressive era because I agree with that great individualist writer of the 1930s and 40s, Isabel Patterson, who once commented that the term progressives, as identified with this early 20th century movement, was really a misnomer that the idea of pervasive government regulation of economic and social life that the progressives were pushing really harkened back to a pre-modern, medieval, pre-industrial, paternalistic public policy, not at all progressive, at least as libertarians would see it. She said, if you go back 150 years, you're called, you're reactionary, but if you go back 1,000 years, she said sarcastically, you're considered in the foremost ranks of progress. Well, the early 20th century so-called progressive movement and many scholars in that movement, men like Roscoe Pound, Learned Hand, Charles Warren, they were not neutral in their analysis of liberty of contract. They were supporters of the progressive movement, supporters of the kinds of laws that the court struck down, so-called social legislation laws. It's a term of art that legal historians have used for this new category of laws, literally unprecedented laws being pushed in the early 20th century, that rather than being laws that generally applied to everybody, applied only to particular classes in society, presumably to protect vulnerable classes, but based explicitly on a very paternalistic theory about government. Because they supported these laws, this so-called social legislation, they were hostile to the individualist philosophy they perceived in the court decisions protecting liberty of contract. And their personal hostility to that philosophy colored their criticism of the jurisprudence. Modern scholars who interpret cases like Lochner by relying on the views of such early 20th century progressives, partisans like Pound, Hand, or Warren, would make the same kind of mistake 
that future historians would make in, for example, relying on the views of the national right to life in interpreting the court's decision in Roe versus Wade. They're clearly a partisan view. The Heller Supreme Court decision enshrined an individual right to keep and bear arms, but how it did so may be just as important. Nelson Lund, a professor at George Mason University Law School, argues that the Heller decision was decidedly unoriginalist for an opinion drafted by Antonin Scalia. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. After the Heller decision was announced, there was a lot of celebrating by gun rights advocates and by proponents of the interpretive theory of originalism, and that was understandable. Heller was the first significant victory for gun rights in the history of the Supreme Court, and the majority opinion is filled to the brim with the rhetoric of originalism and with detailed historical exegesis. I just wish it were all true. But I'm afraid this reminds me a little bit of the celebrations of the court's Commerce Clause decisions in Lopez and Morrison. Heller was an important test case for the interpretive theory of originalism. There were virtually no Supreme Court precedents, certainly none that could be considered dispositive. And this was also a good test case for originalism because the Second Amendment poses some genuine puzzles. Its text, for example, uniquely combines an explanatory preface and a command. What it says is a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what does the preambular reference to the importance of a well-regulated militia have to do with the right of the people to keep and bear arms? One usually thinks of constitutional rights as obstacles to regulation not spurs to regulation. And it's not immediately evident, at least to typical 21st century readers, how the right of the people, or this right of the people, would contribute to the establishment or preservation of a well-regulated militia. A different kind of puzzle arises from changes in the world since 1791. The militia organizations extolled by the founding generation have withered away, and advances in the technology of weaponry have produced arms that are far more dangerous than anything that was available in the founding era. And how do these developments affect the applicability of the Second Amendment to modern society? Heller was a good test case for originalism for yet another reason. The opinion was assigned to the court's most prominent exponent of originalist jurisprudence, Justice Scalia. Now, thanks to a large body of originalist scholarly literature written over the past 30 years, Scalia successfully made a powerful case for two important propositions. First, the right to keep and bear arms is an individual, private right, not a right of the states to organize militias. Second, the purpose of the right is to enable individuals to exercise their inherent or natural right of self-defense including the right to defend themselves against criminal violence. But that's not enough to resolve the initial textual puzzle about the relationship between the prefatory language of the (laughs) Second Amendment and its operative clause. Scalia tries to do this, as any originalist must, but his analysis is full of fallacies and absurdities. He provides no tenable explanation of the meaning of the reference to a well-regulated militia in the constitutional text, 
and he provides no evidence of any kind about the proper scope of the people's right to keep and bear arms. The most difficult textual question, which Scalia never even addresses, is how codifying the right to arms could have been expected to preserve, promote, or prevent the elimination of a well-regulated militia. I believe there's a perfectly good answer to that question, but no answer of any kind will be found in Scalia's opinion. And that is a very, very serious shortcoming in a judicial opinion that purports to rely as heavily as Scalia's does on textual analysis and originalist interpretive principles. Scalia's failure to identify any textual or historical evidence about the scope of the Second Amendment right has spectacular effects when he addresses the principal question at stake in the Heller case itself, namely whether the D.C. handgun ban was unconstitutional. The court concluded, of course, that it was unconstitutional, but the only reason Scalia offers are that handguns are popular weapons for self-defense among Americans today, that he thinks there are good reasons why handguns are popular. That is not an historical or originalist argument. If it's any kind of argument at all, it's probably a disguised and incomplete form of the quasi-legislative living constitution interest balancing approach that Scalia disdainfully dismisses elsewhere in his opinion. It's very striking that Scalia abandons any pretense of originalism when he addresses the question actually presented in the case. What's even more striking is that he also includes a series of astounding and unnecessary comments endorsing various forms of gun control that were not at issue in the case. Scalia does not provide a shred of legitimate historical evidence to support any of these conclusions. To the extent that he gives any reasons at all, they are based on blatant mischaracterizations of the historical evidence, on plainly inapplicable decisions of state courts, and in one case on interpreting a prior Supreme Court decision to mean the opposite of what it says. In a narrow sense, the Constitution was vindicated in Heller because the court reached an easily defensible originalist result. But the court's reasoning is at critical points so defective and so transparently non-originalist in some respects that I think Heller should be seen as an embarrassment for every justice who joined the majority opinion. Adam Smith was a moral philosopher, in addition to laying the groundwork for all economists who followed him. Smith's attempt to create a true science of man is discussed by Nicholas Philipson in his new book, Adam Smith, An Enlightened Life. He spoke at the Cato Institute in January. In his moral philosophy, he talks about the way in which we acquire sentiments of morality, justice, a political obligation, particularly aesthetics. Um, and what he does, he does two things which are interesting. The first is he very quietly distances himself from Hutchison's notion that there is a moral sense. We have a moral sensibility, of course we do. No one could doubt that we have a moral sensibility. But is it hardwired in the human personality? Smith saw no reason to believe that. We have a sensibility, we acquire a sensibility. How do we do it? Essentially, through sympathy with others, sympathetic relationships which are fostered and shaped by language. 
That is where our sensibility comes from. That is where our moral sensibility comes from. And that is where the various aspects of sensibility make it possible for us to function as sociable animals. The moral sensibility, the sense of fairness and justice, the sense of obligation to our sovereigns, the sense of beauty which attends our thinking about morality and the social virtues. And the second thing that Smith does in this is instead of privileging the sense of morality as being the primary sense from which all our other different aspects of our social sensibility stem, he said, no, it's justice. A sense of fairness, which is the origins of our sense of justice, which gives birth to a sense of justice. Until we have that sense of fairness, until we acquire a sense of justice, we have no hope of acquiring a moral sensibility and everything else. And then when he turns to government, his ideas of why we obey government and where our sensibility to men of power and men of rank is entirely disgraceful. It is as contemptible as anything that has turned up, ethically as contemptible as anything that has turned up in the Enlightenment, and he presents it as so. Our really disgraceful disposition to sympathize with the fortunes of the great and the powerful, our natural respect for life. And this is the sole pillar on which our political sensibilities, our respect for our political obligation naturally arises. Now, the point I want to make here is that this agenda is really quite fascinating. Through it all runs a single theme and that is that the primary characteristic of human nature, the characteristic which renders, which makes it possible for us to understand the world and to understand ourselves and to operate effectively and happily within it, in the last resort comes down to a disposition to exchange, to exchange goods, services, and sentiments. And as I say, Smith says in The Wealth of Nations, the habit of exchange is the habit in which we indulge from the cradle to the grave. That principle of exchange runs through every single aspect of Smith's understanding of the principles of human nature as he develops them in his philosophy syllabus at Glasgow. And what that principle of exchange has built into it is a notion that if we want to understand the principles of human nature, then actually what we have to attend to is in fact something that is essentially historical as a process, something that takes place within the framework of historical time. Our own moral understanding of the world and of ourselves is the result of experience which is something that happens within historical time, our own particular experience. But our own particular experience operates within the framework of the conventions of a particular civil society. And what is more, the conventions of that particular civil society are only truly explicable within a civilizational framework, within the framework of a pastoral or a feudal or a commercial or capitalist or post-capitalist society. 
In other words, what Smith is saying holds together and turns and allows us to understand the principles of human nature is something like a deep historical process. And what I want to emphasize here is that what is completely lacking from all of this and what makes this study in itself of enormous and even revolutionary importance for a historian is that there is no mention of the necessity of religious belief. Smith never denies that a lot of people do what they do for religious reasons, but he says on every occasion you can find a natural reason drawn from philosophy and history and experience which will provide a stronger account of principles which otherwise theologians would import, essentially theological principles to understand. Religion has been taken out of the moral philosophy curriculum in Glasgow by Adam Smith. It has not happened anywhere else in Europe, in North or South. It is a revolutionary moment in the history of moral philosophy and therefore a revolutionary moment in the sort of education which was designed to prepare boys from essentially from the middling ranks of society for a life in the professions and public life. I do want to say that in talking about this, one of the things I've tried to do and would love to do more of and will do more of in future is to expose the huge debts that Adam Smith owed to his closest friend, David Hume. We are accustomed to acknowledge the importance of David Hume in shaping or partially shaping Smith's economic thinking. We know about that. The thinking that comes from the end of Hume's philosophical life in the authorship of the political discourses of 1752. What I don't think has been nearly enough appreciated is the huge importance of Smith's revolution in the understanding of the principles of human nature, Hume's skepticism, that is to say, not only his religious skepticism, but his philosophical skepticism, and its importance in shaping Hume's own agenda for a science of man. And I do think that what is interesting is to think about Smith as a man who, in many respects, completed and extended that extraordinary project for creating a science of man which disregarded religious principles altogether. And it is that that I've tried to remember him in this book. Everyone agrees that we have too few good schools and too many lousy ones. What's missing is a mechanism for replicating what works. Peja Emelson is founder of Kunskepskolen in Sweden. He discussed what works in Sweden at the Cato Institute in January. Let me show how the school voucher system. Today, political consensus, and it is unique combination of quality and free market, publicly funded, in its same national core curriculum for all schools, and independent schools had equal opportunities to enter the market. It's very easy to set up a school. And the children, the parents decide. And they can decide whenever they like. If they don't like the school on a Monday, they can take the money away and go to another school. We are not allowed to pick and choose students. It's first come, first serve. We can never test one. We can never say we'll take you instead of you. And we cannot charge additional fees. 
And then some people ask, but how the hell can you make money of that? And I say, well, anything the government does, you can, of course, get a better result at a 20% lower cost. It's very easy. So this is then the freedom explosion. From less than 1% to 11% in compulsory schools and 23% in upper secondary. In some parts of the Stockholm area, 50% goes to independent schools. One of five Swedish schools is an independent school, and 60% of independent schools are for profit companies. All political parties except the communists accept profits. I told that to my conservative friends in the UK, the only one that because they are also haven't understood profits. The independent schools are outperforming public schools in results. And this is very important. If you see that you can have in our grading system 320 marks, and all the public schools have an average of two. 109 and all the independent schools 229. It's substantially better. And if you bring out uh, 10 chain schools that are building up efficient back offices, our results are even higher. We are providing better educational results. And that's, of course, important to get an acceptance in Sweden. And a recent study just a few weeks ago from the public authorities in Sweden show that the cost is about 20% lower cost for merit grade rating point in independent schools compared to public schools. We are getting much more education for each invested Swedish crowns. You see at 2010, 324 crowns it cost in the public schools and 268 in independent schools. Those that believe that you cannot make it education more efficient are just wrong. And in all surveys of students, parents, and teachers, satisfaction, independent school performs better or much better. And when independent school have entered cities with public schools, it has increased the quality of the public schools. Competition works. That's the overall system. Let me then say a few words about Kunskapsskolan. Because we have, and the reason for the success of Kunskapsskolan is that we have, in a way, disrupted the system, the traditional educational system, and found a new way of combining modern technology with teacher participation. So our mission is to develop and operate outstanding schools where students, through personalized learning and clear goals, will stretch their boundaries and learn more than they thought possible. We are convinced, we know, that anyone can do much more if they are given the right kind of chance and inspiration to do that. So we replace old structures of schools with modern techniques for coaching and empowering each individual student. It's funny to set the student in the center. That is not the tradition in educational policy. You don't look at each individual, but everyone knows that persons learn in different ways. Some when they talk, some when they read, some when they write, some when they listen. And some know this much and some that much. You talk about classroom size. It's impossible if you have 20, 30, or 40 in a classroom, the teacher, or whoever good he or she is, will always lose a number of them on the top and the bottom with different learning skills. So we develop personal schemes instead for each one. 
we make sure that we have all the curriculum on the computer system, which means that our teachers spend at least 27 hours a week with their students. It's actually about 30 hours. And in Swedish schools, it's only 20. So we get much more teacher work with the students. They are not allowed to sit at home and prepare for their lectures because it's in the system. In private schools, sometimes teachers only spend about 10 hours a week with the students. When we looked in the UK system, we said, my God, we could start a private school system, charge about half the amount of money what it cost, and provide better education at a much more efficient way. So this is a typical school of us, fairly different from what it is in normal schools. And this has been made possible only because we have had competition. We opened our first school year 2000. Now we've got about 10,000 pupils and a staff about 800. And there you see our national grade, our average grade. It's close to 240, superior to all the averages. We have about the best results in Sweden. And in some way, I'm now after 10 years. You know, the first year I wasn't convinced what would happen. But now I know the fact that you put each individual student in focus and make sure that it get into a system where they can do better. That is the reason for this. Your GPS location can provide a portrait of your daily activities. So naturally, governments would like unfettered access to that information. Ron Wyden, a Democratic U.S. Senator from Oregon, would like to limit the government's use of that data. He spoke about his proposal at the Cato Institute in January. Seems to me we have a chance today to have one of those serious discussions. And here this morning we have a chance to talk about getting the law right when it comes to new technologies. And what we're dealing with in the race to communicate, to work from the road, to send pictures, for example, of your kids to friends. Our technological advances have often sort of sped beyond the kind of legal framework, the kind of legal parameters that we have, and particularly our balances and checks. Tech companies are working fast and furiously to come up with the latest and hottest you know, new gadget. We all think that's a big plus. It's a big plus for creating jobs, a healthy economy, and in the parlance of last night's speech, winning the future. I am for that. I am clearly on the side of trying to promote those advances. And part of the way to do it is to provide some certainty and predictability so that our laws can keep up with the new challenges that the technologies bring. And if anything, we can further unleash the entrepreneurs and the innovators because they have a sense of what kind of legal parameters are in front of them. Today, of course, most Americans have some kind of handheld electronic device, a cell phone, a digital assistant, a GPS navigation device. They pretty much carry them around everywhere they go and subscribe to all kinds of services that support the tools and increase the capabilities. So while everybody is out there, 
talking and texting and Googling and emailing, they probably aren't spending a lot of time reflecting about the fact that private companies now log increasingly detailed information about where they're going, what they're doing, and essentially their activities. This is not, in my view, automatically some kind of nefarious you know, plot. It is mostly a consequence of the success of American business in answering the needs of their customers. The impact of all that does, in my view, uh, have to be taken seriously. These technologies make it possible to collect vast amounts of increasingly precise and accurate information about the American people. So it is important to ensure that this information is then used in a way that both protects the public good, public safety, and protects the privacy of law-abiding Americans. This is the constitutional teeter-totter in action, folks. Over here, collective security. Over here, individual liberty and privacy. And it is that teeter-totter in action that I'm discussing. As you look at the various aspects of the law that apply to handheld electronic devices, you see one question just leap out at you. There are increasing numbers of companies that receive the data that reveals their customers' movements and locations. And the question is, what do government agencies have to do if they want to go to these companies and get this information? Are they supposed to get a court order? Do they need a court order? If so, how much evidence do they have to show to a judge in order to get one? What is the legal framework here for what will answer the question about uh, the government getting this kind of information? Now, if you were to go out on the street, you were going into a coffee shop in, in your hometown, and you ask people these questions, I think for the most part, they'd give you fairly similar answers. They'd say, look, if there is strong evidence that somebody is involved in criminal activity, is acting on behalf of, say, a terrorist group, they'd want intelligence or law enforcement officials to be able to track that person without a whole array of confusion and legal ambiguity and, and problems. They would also want laws, in my view, that protect the privacy rights of the vast majority of Americans, law-abiding citizens who don't fit into that uh, category of, uh, of individuals that I mentioned uh, first. Justice Louis Brandeis once said in regard to a surveillance case that came before the court, and I quote, the most comprehensive of rights and the most valued by civilized men was the right of our people to be left alone by the government. Leaving people alone means respecting individual privacy rights, searching people's homes, tapping their phone calls, reading their mail, certainly would strike most people as invasions of privacy. That, of course, and Jim touched on, is what the Fourth Amendment is all about. The government, in effect, has to show some uh, significant tier of evidence, probable cause, get a warrant if they want to go out and do these things. Now, if you ask most Americans, I think they would tell you that surreptitiously turning somebody's cell phone into a modern-day tracking device 
which of course is increasingly easy to do, and using it to monitor their movements 24-7 is a pretty serious intrusion into their privacy, pretty much comparable to searching their house or tapping their phone calls. And I believe most Americans would agree that secretly reviewing records to find out where somebody had gone, say, over the last uh, six weeks or, or so would also be an equally significant intrusion. And I believe that uh, monitoring a person's you know, movements using a tracking device covertly installed by the government would be seen as essentially the same thing as secretly obtaining the records of their movement from the local uh, phone company. So that's how I really arrived at the position that if a government agency wants to do this kind of stuff, they want to do these kinds of things, it ought to obtain something that resembles what we've always considered probable cause before getting access to this kind of personal you know, information. Now, some might argue that tracking an individual's movement, at least when they are outside of their house, is not comparable to searching their home or reading their mail, because when people are moving, in effect, from one place to another, they're essentially moving around in public rather than in private. So I came to the conclusion that if you drive from your home to the grocery store, you obviously expect that other people might see you. But tracking somebody's movements 24-7 for an extended period of time is pretty different than, in effect, observing them on a single trip to the store. If you monitor a person's movements for several you know, weeks, you can find out if they regularly visit a particular doctor, uh, a psychiatrist, attend meetings of what would possibly be a locally unpopular political group, what houses of worship they visit, are they going to an AIDS you know, clinic. You won't just find out one of these things. Folks, you're going to find out all this stuff about them. The Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit looked at this and made a point of distinguishing visual surveillance from electronic surveillance and pointed out that it is often the case that different legal standards apply to different uh, types of surveillance. For example, a government agency doesn't need a warrant to stand across the street from somebody's house and watch who goes in or out, but if the government wants to watch how many people are in the house using some high-tech thermal imaging device, the government for that kind of activity would need a warrant. Also, there is in the kind of real world a difference between visual and electronic surveillance. Tracking somebody's movements with a surveillance team requires a significant amount of labor and resource, which means that the use of these teams generally is more limited, perhaps more limited to important cases. Tracking somebody's movements with a GPS device or monitoring their cell phone is cheap, it's easy, and every day it seems to get cheaper and it seems to get easier. So the resource barriers that in the past have acted as some sort of check against visual surveillance abuse is not, in my view, in the same place when it comes to the newer surveillance techniques. So it came to be fairly clear to me that the explosion of portable electronic devices in our society and their ability to track owners' movements 
is a new phenomenon, it is a genuinely different phenomenon, and that this raises a variety of different and serious issues for intelligence gathering, for law enforcement, and the balance that is so essential to protect individual rights. So we then arrive at the question of whether our existing laws are adequate for dealing with this type of situation or whether it's going to be important to set in place a new legal framework. I will tell you, and I'm going to just spend a couple more minutes on this, I think it is important to modernize the law in this area, and this is a policy area where the law has not kept up with the times. So several months ago, I asked the Congressional Research Service to analyze the legal landscape that surrounds the government's ability to gather a geolocation information. They did a report for us, and it seemed clear to me that there was a blind spot in the law and that the courts, even among themselves, are divided about how to handle this. The report from the Congressional Research Service makes it very clear that the federal courts are collectively uncertain. They are collectively unsure about how to handle these issues and that this has created confusion for law enforcement officials. They cite in the report case after case where government requests for court orders were denied because the government and the courts couldn't agree on how much evidence was needed to acquire geolocation information on specific individuals. And after a lot of legal analysis, the report concludes there is virtually no consistency between courts around the country on how much evidence ought to be needed before the government starts rifling through an individual's private life. My view is that this lack of clarity is endangering the privacy of the American people and making it harder for law enforcement officials to do their jobs. When law enforcement and other government entities don't know what the rules are, that means that law enforcement folks in a time of tight uh, budgets are wasting valuable time and resources trying to figure out how they ought to operate. Because the law is being interpreted differently in different jurisdictions, government attorneys have got to figure out uh, what the standards for evidence is in the various places in which they operate. And if a particular judge or jurisdiction hasn't ruled on the question, then government attorneys are potentially put in the position of having to request a court order without knowing what standards or procedures the judge expects them to follow. Just picture that. You've got lawyers, lawyers dealing with sensitive matters who simply are walking around in the dark without knowing what standards or procedures the judge expects them to follow. What ends up happening is that the government spends vast amounts of time and resources litigating and appealing what ought to be laid out in straightforward rules. And this can have dangerous consequences. It's pretty easy to imagine a case where government agents are stymied in their efforts to track a dangerous criminal or a terrorist suspect because a government lawyer makes an incorrect guess about how much information ought to be included in their request for a court order. 
We've already seen at least one case, United States versus Jones, also known as United States versus Maynard, where a major drug conviction and life sentence was overturned because the government attempted to gamble on using outdated precedents and creating legal arguments rather than going forward with a valid probable cause warrant. Now, my view is that this means that the Congress ought to step in, look at these outdated laws, and work on a bipartisan basis to clearly and plainly lay out a set of rules for government acquisition of geolocation information. This would give law enforcement and intelligence agencies an opportunity to get the information they legitimately need in a way that strikes the balance with law-abiding people, protects the privacy, and keeps that constitutional teeter-totter in balance. Green energy and green job proponents offer many alluring promises, including risk-free ways to improve our economy and our environment. But a new Cato Institute book evaluates their claims and reveals that most of them are based on wishful thinking, bad economics, and borrowed money. In short, they are simply false promises. To learn more or to buy your copy of The False Promise of Green Energy, visit catostore.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.